The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. There are people in the church at Corinth that are denying a bodily resurrection. It's a, it's a, a general denying of a bodily resurrection in any form. That once you are dead, your soul may go on to an afterlife, but your body remains and there is no resurrection Period. There are, are those in Corinth that, that are, are believing that and they are, are teaching that. And so Paul takes chapter 15 to address this issue in, in the life of the church there at Corinth. And he, he does so by laying out some, some layered arguments. And we've, we've really already covered two of those arguments and, and today we'll pick up on the third the first is that, that Paul begins by reminding them that they have already believed in a resurrection. Like There may be some among you who are saying there is no bodily resurrection. And you might think that they're you know, learned and smart and move beyond some things. But let me remind you that you have already believed in a bodily resurrection. That's... Verse 1 of chapter 15, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Meaning, if you go off and start believing this stuff that they're telling you, you're not holding fast and your belief is in vain because your belief was rooted and grounded in a resurrection. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as First importance above everything else, what I also received that received is from God, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Church, you have already believed this. Now there's some people in among you who are saying there's no bodily resurrection. But you've already believed this. That's his, his first argument. Then he, he follows that up with a theological argument. That's what we looked at last week, where Paul sort of assumes that, that that's true, right? So he takes this stance of saying, well, let's just assume for a second that they are true, that there is no bodily resurrection. And what you need to understand and what you need to realize is, is that if there is no bodily resurrection, like when you're dead, maybe your spirit goes on um, to an afterlife, but your body remains forever if you believe that, then you need to understand there are some disastrous consequences that take place. Like this, this isn't just you know a, a secondary theology, a secondary doctrine, a secondary uh, belief, but this is fundamental. And if you take it away, some some major things happen. And he 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 rolls through seven there that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised from the dead. Christ has not been raised from the dead. Secondly, our, our preaching is useless. Our preaching is in vain. Now remember when he says our, our preaching, he's not talking about just the act of preaching. What he's talking about is the content, the message of the preaching. That what we have preached to you is in vain. Because he's already told them what it is that he preached to them, right? For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. 
That Christ died in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was risen on the third day in accordance with the scripture. What he's saying is that content, what you've believed, the gospel, it's useless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. If our preaching is useless, if our message is useless, then your faith is useless. And fourthly, all the apostles are false witnesses. All of those who saw the resurrected Christ are a bunch of liars. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, then you are in your sin. Because his resurrection from the dead was the validation of his redeeming work on the cross, his payment for sin. And if he was not raised, there was no payment, and you are still in your sins. And if you are still in your sins, sixthly, then those who have died are lost. They're gone without hope. And then seventhly, if all of it's not true, then we above all men are most to be pitied because we've centered our lives around something that isn't true. That's the theological argument that Paul makes. Once he finishes there, he moves on to an eschatological argument. Eschatological means um, the end times. Eschatology is the study of the end times or the study of things to come. So Paul bases his next argument not on, on what you've already believed and not on the consequences of if it's true, but he bases his argument on what is to come. In the end, we know there was a bodily resurrection of Christ and we know that there will be a bodily resurrection of those who belong to him because there are things that will take place. And the things that will take place in the end all revolve around a resurrection. And if they revolve around a resurrection, then there is a resurrection. That's, That's Paul's... Argument. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 20, but before we do there, I do want to pause just for a second, just to remind us this morning and, and last week and even the week before and next week and the week after of the goodness and the grace of God to have us in a portion of His scriptures by His sovereignty where we are taking an in depth and lengthy look at the resurrection before we ever get to Resurrection Sunday. I mean, how good is it for God to say, we've got Easter coming where we celebrate the the resurrection of Christ. And for some churches, I mean, that, that might be the only sermon they hear on the resurrection. The rest are just, you know, seven steps to a happy marriage. Stuff like that. How good it is that we can stop and we can focus in on these verses and we can look at the resurrection of Christ and pray that as we do it, two weeks ago, last week, this week, next week, the week after, to say, God, would you, this this year more than ever, would you prepare my hearts and prepare my mind for Easter Sunday when it comes so that we could be just week after week saturated in, in the truth of the resurrection. So when that day comes, our, our, our worship and celebration of that is, is stronger than, than ever. So in doing that, let's look at the text starting in verse 20. 
But the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead, right? That's where we, we left last week because I didn't want to leave with all of the negative. All of these things that, that hypothetically would be the case if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Yet the, the truth is, the fact is, I, I just love the way Paul puts it. The fact is, the truth is, it's undeniable. Christ has been raised. He's been raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, he is the first fruits, Paul says, of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does this mean that... Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Does this mean that Jesus was the first to die? No. Does not mean that Jesus was the first to die. Does this mean that Jesus was the first to be risen from the dead? No. It does not mean that Jesus was the first to be risen from the dead. There there were people before Christ, some Christ himself is risen from from the dead. They came before him. So surely when, when Paul says the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead and that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, it's not he's the first to, to die and it's not that he was the first to be risen from the dead. So then what is it? And to understand what it means for Christ to be the first fruits, we have to understand what a first fruits uh, is. And the way we understand that is we let the scriptures show us what that is. And we, we see that in Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 9, the Lord is, is speaking to Moses to give um, the people of Israel instructions on their, their worship of him during uh, the harvest season. This is Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, this this is the promised land, when you get there and you reap its harvest, you receive from it the the bounty, the the harvest, the, the provision of the land. When you reap the harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So here's the first fruit. It's, a, it's an offering. It's a grain offering unto the Lord. That when you go into this promised land that I give you and you harvest the goods of the land, be they wheat or or whatever it it may be, you take them, you wrap them in a sheaf. A sheaf is just just a bundle. You You wrap them up in a bundle. The very first that you take... The first fruits of the harvest, that's what it means. The very first bit you cut down, you take it and you give it to the priest so that the priest on your behalf can come before the Lord and offer him the very first fruits of 
of the, of the harvest. That's what it means to be a, a first fruit. It is the very first of the harvest that is to come. And in a lot of ways, it is the best of the harvest that is to come. It's an offering. It's a celebration of what God will bring as you reap the rest of the harvest. Here's what it means for Jesus to be the first fruits. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It is that he is the first of the harvest of eternal life. The first of the harvest of never-ending life. Yes, there were some before Christ who had died. And yes, there were some before Christ who had even been risen from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. But all of them risen from the dead to do what? To die again. Jesus Christ was the first to be risen from the dead to everlasting life. The first of the harvest of eternal life that is to come. He's the very first one. He's the first fruits. And church, here's here's what that means. It means that because he's the first fruits, that there's a guaranteed harvest afterwards. You know, in the Old Testament, the harvest would not be reaped until the first fruits were given. And so it is with Christ. No one could experience the harvest of eternal life until Christ came first. And his resurrection to eternal life as the first fruits guarantees our resurrection to eternal life. His resurrection as the first fruit of the harvest guarantees that those who belong to him will be gathered in a harvest that is to come in the same way he was a part of the harvest. Now, Why do we need Christ as a first fruit? Why did Jesus need to come first? Why are we dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our resurrection? Why couldn't God just say, well, I will just raise anybody up I want to raise up to eternal life. Why instead did there have to be this first offering, this this first resurrection of, of Jesus Christ? Well, the reason why that is, is because of what the next couple of verses say. Verse 21, for by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as by a man came death to all, that that man, that single man was Adam. 
And from Adam and his sin, sin spread to all people. And with that sin came death to all people. That's the point Paul's, Paul's making here. He's, it's so important, he's, he's making it twice, right? Verse 21 and verse, verse 21, 22. For as by a man came death, for as in Adam all die. That the sin of Adam had lasting effects on the human race, so much so that every single person born after him We're held accountable for sin and sentenced to death. Romans chapter 5 gives one of the most in-depth treatments of this. It's found in Romans chapter 5 starting in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came into the world through one man. Sin spread throughout the world to all men because all men sinned. And then Jesus makes clarification here in verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Right? Between Adam and Moses there really is no law. But even though there was no law, sin was still present. It was there. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet even though that may be the case, still yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who were sinning, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a a type of the one who was to come. Here's what Paul is, is saying is, yes, You can look at sin as simply breaking the law of God. But the only law of God that was given was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam did that and in that Adam sinned and his sin brought death. There wasn't law until Moses came. And so even though there was no law between Adam and Moses. And even though sin against the law might not be counted against them because there was no sin. Yet death reigned to Adam to Moses because sin reigned. Because sin isn't just breaking the law. Sin is going against God. And that was present. From Adam to Moses. Once Moses came to deliver the law, it just made it clear for everybody. Nonetheless, from Adam to Moses, death reigned. One man's action brought death to all. Because we were all born in the same nature of Adam. Every single one of us born with a sinful nature. Theological term for that is total depravity. That you and I are born totally and completely depraved. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, as it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of the asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now you may read that and you may say, well, Jason, I just don't know that that's true. Because there are people who do good things. Listen, you can do moral things that does not make you good morally. You are guilty before a holy God. Born in the very nature of Adam. A sin nature that brings death. Now, even as I say that, even as I read that, even as I believe that, I can see where some would hear that and they would come away from that and they would say, isn't it wrong that because of one man's actions, all men are held accountable to this? Anybody else feel that way? But I believe there's a better question. And the better question is, that is it just for Jesus to do one thing and for it to be given to all of us? You see, that's the goodness and the grace of God. And that's the parallel that Paul is, is, is giving here. Is that one man, Adam, brought death to all men. So the, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in his one action, brings life to all men. Do you see? that This is, this is going to be the culmination of these, these texts today. We're starting to see it here. That what God is doing in Jesus Christ and what God is doing in his resurrection is he is is making all things the way that they were. Just as one man brought sin and death to everyone, so one man brings life to everyone. That's what he says. For by one man came death. And by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. What fantastic news. This is the good news of the gospel. In Adam all die. And you're an all. But in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, anybody got a question about this verse? Because there's a lot of people who, who have some questions about this verse. And they, they will even build um, somewhat of, of a whole you know, theological stance on this verse. Because they're going to zero in on that word all. And before they know it, they're a universalist. Like is what Paul, is what Paul is saying is that just as in Adam, every person is a sinner and is, is, is dead, then because of Jesus Christ, every person is alive. That means all go to heaven. That's what the verse says, right? Well, we know from the Scriptures that's not the case. Right? I mean, we know from the Scriptures there is a place called hell. There is a judgment of God. We know from the Scriptures that more people take the path of the judgment of God than take the path of life in Christ. We know that. 
You see, the, the key to understanding this verse in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The key to understanding this verse is the next verse. Don't you love how the scriptures work? Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Listen, everything hinges on our relationship to the man. Just as in a man, sin came to all the world, by a man comes resurrection. Everything hinges on your relationship to the man. If you are connected to Adam, then you are counted with Adam as sinful and you die. Now, do you know what that means? Every single person is connected to Adam, naturally, right? We all come naturally from Adam. And because we all come naturally to him, from him, because we are all connected to him, we are all held accountable like him. Everything hinges on your connection to the man. But if you are connected to Christ, the way verse 23 says it, those who belong to him, if you are not naturally connected like Adam, but supernaturally connected through faith to Jesus, then you get resurrection life. You see, the all isn't every single person. The all is every person who belongs to him. Every person who's connected to him. All who belong to Jesus Christ will live. That is the great and good news of the gospel. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. If you belong to Jesus Christ, his resurrection as the first fruits guarantees your resurrection when the full harvest comes. There's an order to this, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming. Those who belong to Christ. So you see the order here. Christ comes first. He's crucified. He's buried. And he's risen from the dead as the first fruits. That had to come first. Next, Christ comes again. Christ comes again. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, do you want to know when that's going to happen? Write this down. October the 17th, 2027. 
Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour. Like a thief in the night, he comes again. Here's the order. Jesus Christ came, crucified, buried, risen as the first fruits. Then at his coming, everyone who belongs to Christ is raised from the dead. The church is raised. The church is raised. We may not know when it's going to happen, but that does not mean that it's not going to happen. But when he comes, some things are going to take place. Some things are going to take place. Now, there is so much discussion about an order and when and how and where all of these things are going to take place. Lots of discussion, lots of opinions. Some opinions I think are foolish. Other opinions I think have merit. There are some opinions that seem to oppose each other where I look at them and go, okay, I can see both of those. They tend to have merit. I prefer to take the stance just like Terry teaches. We're going to stick to the facts. There's some things that are going to take place. And that's what Paul says here. When this happens, when the first fruits comes again to reap the full harvest, there's some things that that are going to take place. Here they are. First. Those who belong to him will be raised. When he comes again, there will be a resurrection. And it will be a resurrection of the dead. Listen, when you die, when a loved one dies, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, you, you immediately go in spirit to be in, present with the Lord. The scriptures use this language of falling asleep because it carries with it this imagery of the body asleep in the grave. Which means it's not going to stay there, right? You don't stay asleep. Some of you hardly ever stay asleep. You wake up six or seven times throughout the night. But your body is asleep in the grave because when Jesus comes again, your body comes it's risen from the, from the dead. We're not going to be just these, you know, ethereal floating beings. We're going to have a body. And when Christ comes, the first thing that takes place is bodies come out of the grave. Glorified bodies. And I believe with everything I've got, I'm going to have a full head of hair. And I'm pumped about it. That's the first thing. Then the second thing, verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see the order. Christ the first fruits risen from the dead. Christ comes again. The church risen from the dead. And then... Paul says the end comes. Now this word end here, it doesn't mean end as in a a timeline. 
What this word means, it's, it's uh, telos in the Greek, it means a, a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment of things. It means that the goal is reached, the, the goal is accomplished. That when Jesus Christ comes again, and when the church is raised from the dead, the grand goal, the fulfillment of the plan is accomplished. And what is that? What is the the plan? What's the goal that is accomplished? It is when he delivers, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. That's the fulfillment. Here, God is the kingdom. And it is yours. Now, what's the kingdom? The kingdom is the people of God. And the earth. Jesus hands to the Father the people of God purchased by his blood, his bride, the church, and the earth, and says, God, here is the kingdom. This is when everything goes back to God how it was in the beginning. That in the end, it will be like the beginning. There will be no sin. There will be God reigning. And there will be His people dwelling with Him in sweet communion. This happens when Jesus Christ comes again. And in His coming, He destroys every rule and every authority and every power. When Jesus Christ comes again, verse 25, he must rule, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, this could be the millennial reign. It could be a millennial reign going on now. I kind of fluctuate both ways. I'm not going to give you my opinion on that. I'm just going to give you the facts. The facts are when Jesus comes again, he reigns. And in his reigning, he crushes every enemy under his feet. The last of which is death. It is death. Done. There is no more death, only eternal life. Now, everything's done in order. Do you see it? Christ comes. There's resurrection. Christ reigns. Enemies are subdued. Consummation, fulfillment takes place. And everything goes to God. And then I love the Apostle Paul because he just wants to make sure you see something and understand something. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Jesus Christ. God has put everything under Jesus Christ's feet. Now, why has God done that? Because Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the dead, right? At his resurrection, because of his resurrection, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, earth, under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything is given unto him, a name above every name. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God puts everything under him. And then I love what Paul says. Now, it's plain. And what Paul means by it's plain is don't be stupid. That's what he means. It's plain. It's obvious. This is some common sense. That he is expected. 
He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Here's what that means. The one who put all things under subjection of Jesus is the exception to the rule. That God puts everything under Jesus' feet for Jesus to reign over except for himself. That's what that means. Now, why Paul felt like he needed to say that, I, I don't know. Dealing with Corinth, you've got to be pretty clear on some stuff, I think. Dealing with me, you've got to be pretty clear on some stuff with things. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Jesus Christ comes again in glory, church risen from the dead, ruling and reigning, subduing every power, every authority, gathering his people, conquering death, giving to God all that is his, and then in humility, Subjecting himself to the Father. And he does this. That God may be all. In all. Guys, this is the promise that awaits us. This is the guarantee that awaits us. How do we know? Because there are no bones. Christ is risen from the dead. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. How do we know that Christ is risen from the dead? Because these things will take place. (laughs) Because one day he's going to step out from heaven and call his church out of the grave. And he will rule and he will reign and he will fulfill and he will hand to God a people and a place that is God's. And God will be in all. All in all. And we dwell with him for eternity. Church, the one who was raised rules. So that we may be raised and rule with him. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. What great promises. If we endure by his grace, if we hold fast to that which we believed, Christ, crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, buried and risen again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. If we endure, if we hold fast, when he comes again and we are raised from the dead and he establishes his rule and reign, we rule with him. Can you imagine? We ought to be crushed, but we're welcomed in. We ought to be judged, but we're giving glory.
And everything will be made new again. And God will be all in all. (coughs) If you believe. You want to know why we preach the gospel the way we preach the gospel? Because this is what's at stake. You got to believe. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.